Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, as told in 1 Kings 18, 17-39. We find Elijah demanding that the people of Israel make a choice between God and Baal, insisting that they cannot serve both. Elijah engages in an elaborate contest with the prophets of Baal, calling down fire from heaven to demonstrate that the God of Israel is truly God. Only after seeing the fire did the people finally confess, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. We think of the ways that we too are called to make a choice between the God of the Bible and the gods of the dominant ideologies of militarism and consumer capitalism but we must make that choice without the benefit of fire coming down from heaven. We're asked to make the choice on slimmer evidence, given in symbol and ritual and prayer. That must suffice for us to confess, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. Thanks for joining us. Amy, it's Bible Worm time. Bible Worm, Bible Worm. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever it's heard not, you sing that before. That was it's beautiful. Not, I don't think I, yeah, it was really beautiful. It's not just regular worm. Not just regular worm. It is the Bible Worm. Yeah. Amy, the, the beauty of fall is upon us and the lilting tones of the leaf blowers are just right outside of my office door today. Isn't it amazing, all the sounds in God's creation? It is. And they all get drowned out by the... <laughs> of the leaf, no, of the leaf I was going to say, on which day of creation did God create leaf blowers? Oh, my goodness. I yeah, I mean, I guess I, I will say that I appreciate the beauty of our campus. We have a very beautiful campus, but it does require a lot of noise to keep it beautiful. Yeah. Anyway, if it's annoying out there, I apologize. But what can I do? I, I don't feel like I could go out there and say, like, Pardon me. <laughs> Could you please pause with your because I'm recording a worm-themed Bible podcast. <laughs> I actually wish you would do that. Yeah. <gasps> Maybe uh, you could. Oh my goodness! I just got such a good idea. Uh-oh. You could set up some kind of ritual with like you as the prophet of Bible worm and then the leaf blowers as the prophets of. Oh yeah. We got a contest landscaping and you could have a contest. And I wonder if our text today will have any ideas about how you could do. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it might mm. indeed. All right, Amy. So last time we spoke, we were in the story of Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the mm-hmm. dissolution of the kingdom into North and South. We've moved, you know, a little bit, but not as far as we sometimes move. Like sometimes we jump whole sections of the canon in one week. Yes. This time we've moved six chapters. We're in First six Kings chapters. 18 in the story of Elijah and part of the story of Elijah and Ahab. That story actually occupies a fair amount of 
1 Kings over into 2 Kings. Today, mm-hmm. we're so, right almost at the beginning of that story. There's a little bit that comes before. So what would you want to say by way of getting us ready to hear this text today? I mean, so the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom have split now. There's no, you know, we, we saw the beginnings of this the last time we met, and that has happened. The Northern Kingdom has had a lot of turnover in its rule. There's no, you know, Davidic kingdom there. So it's just a little bit less clear how, how things are supposed to go. So it's been a little bit tumultuous. Yeah. And at least the way the biblical text reports what's happening there, this problem that we first saw with Jeroboam of, well, I shouldn't even say first saw, but that we saw with Jeroboam of really taking taking on and taking in the local culture and its gods and its yeah. representations of gods yep. has has continued and and probably worsened. So we're at a period now where there's a king named Ahab who is married to a woman named Jezebel, who is not an Israelite woman. She is married actually to the, sorry, not married. She is the daughter of the king of Tyre. Yeah. It was like a, they helped Solomon build the temple. Like they're an ally of yeah. Israel. Yeah. But she she lives in a like Phoenician world, Phoenician mindset. She worships different gods, yeah. and she brings that into their household. and And the biblical text, you know, keeps reporting that Ahab's heart seems to be pulled towards these other god gods, and he's leading the people, and that's a problem. Yeah. So just one chapter before this, in the biblical text, we meet Elijah who tells Ahab that it's not going to rain anymore until God says, the God of Israel says it's time to rain. Yes. Sort of setting up this battle between the Phoenician Phoenician godhead and the God of Israel. Ahab sort of find, uh, sees Elijah as the troublemaker in all this, like Elijah yeah. is somehow causing the problem. And uh, they don't like each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's, there's my summary. That was a really good summary. <laughs> I always laugh when I hear King of Tyre because, so I don't, I'm not sure who the King of Tyre, I'd have to go back and look at Jezebel's lineage, but the King of Tyre in the time of Solomon is Hiram. And my spouse, when we were dating a, a number of years ago, had a flat tire and she took it to this place that was called the Tire King. Then I went in and I was like, <laughs> excuse me, can I speak with Hiram, please? <laughs> And they were like, you oh. did not. <laughs> so I was like, you know, hire him, the king of Tyre. And they were, um, oh wow! Bobby. I didn't. I didn't actually do that, but it was. I told. I told Lindy <laughs> that I was going to do that, and it was part of my charm. I was going to say, and yet she married you. And yet she married you. There's a certain <laughs> kind of. There's only like there's a certain kind of person who marries a Bible scholar, like yeah, you know. And so like it's only people who appreciate jokes about the Tyre King, who would enter into such a life with someone such as I. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing related that's probably worth saying is just that we oftentimes think of like Israel and Judah as like the big kids on the block, you know, like everybody wanted to be Mm. them in the ancient world. If if you just read the Bible, that's kind of the impression that you get. Historically speaking, Phoenicia was actually quite a cosmopolitan place. It was an international trade center, Tyre and Sidon up on the sort of northwest coast and modern day Lebanon were... Uh, very central to trading all through the Mediterranean. And so Jezebel, it's not like she's from some podunk backwoods place 
Like she is from, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the leading cultures of the time and she is married into Israel. And so she's trying to like, I don't know, like bring Israel into the sort of modern world, so to speak, Mm -hmm. get them caught up with the, with the times. And so it's sort of an interesting dynamic. The biblical text, of course, is very opposed to this sort of progressive or like uh, international cosmopolitan perspective that she brings. Yeah. No, it's an interesting way to think about it. The city kid and the country kid get married. All right. So our text today is 1 Kings 18, 17 to 39. And it picks up, as you were saying, just sort of in the in the midst of this drought that has been brought on that Ahab has, well, that Elijah has announced in the previous chapter due to Ahab's sort of worship of other gods. Mm-hmm. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one who troubles Israel? Elijah answered, I haven't troubled Israel. You and your father's house have. You did as much when you deserted the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now send a message and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. Gather the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. This language of the troubler of Israel, it's just so interesting. And this like the back and forth, like you're the trouble of Israel. No, you're the trouble of Israel. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about like what's going on there? I mean, in some ways, I I feel like Ahab has confused the, the messenger with the source, you know, Everything was kind of fine until Elijah told Ahab it's not going to rain anymore. Yeah. In the previous chapter. And so I I mean it's I guess it's in some ways not unreasonable for Ahab to think Elijah caused that. Yeah. But what Elijah's saying is like I didn't cause that. I just told you it was going to happen. Your behavior is causing it. Yeah. It's, Bobby, it's just hard to know how God works in the world because God works through people and nature and, you know, all kinds of turns of events. And so, yeah, I just feel like they're in this moment of like, it's it's hard to know what is really the cause of, of what's happening. That's really insightful. It reminds me, I mean, I think prophets are often treated this way. Yeah. Right, where you so. point out a problem in society And like the mainstream society says, stop causing trouble. Mm -hmm. When in fact, Mm -hmm. what you were doing was pointing out that from a certain kind of perspective anyway, there already was trouble there. You see this with like the contemporary conversations about critical race theory and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes people who talk about like maybe slavery wasn't such a good thing that we did. Maybe. And then the people who say that are the ones who are causing the problems, not the ones who like were enslaving people and like living that legacy without seeming to even acknowledge that it exists. Like who's the troublemaker there? And this to me reminds me a little bit of that. Elijah's sort of pointing out a problem that Ahab doesn't recognize as a problem, I guess. Like he doesn't think syncretism is an issue. So we've got this conflict where everybody thinks the other one is the one causing the problem. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, we get this language about following the Baals or the Baals, and we get the language of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. We don't need a whole like ancient Near Eastern, you know, like religion lecture, but for those of us who are not as familiar with sort of the biblical worldview, could you just talk a little bit about Baal and Asherah? So 
bail, as I understand it, is sort of like the one of the one of the, if not the lead god in the Canaanite. I'm not sure what word to use. I was going to say world of gods, which is kind of a weird frame. But there's more than one god, I guess, yes. is, is what I would want to say. Baal is actually a storm god, which makes it particularly ironic that the problem they're having is that it won't rain. Yes. So it really has like set up this tension between the God of Israel, who's not a God of like a particular aspect of reality. It's just God of everything. Who's against this God that is really supposed to be focused on weather related phenomena. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that already sets it up to be like a little bit pointed. Yeah. And then what do they call here? Her Asherah. Yeah. My understanding of Asherah is that this is a feminine yes. god, goddess, but is maybe a female companion to Baal. Yeah. So this is sort of like a maybe masculine, feminine parallel situation. Yeah. I don't know. What What else can you No, that was that? perfect. I really, you like you set it up, like that's, those are really important details. We've got two of the gods of the Canaanite pantheon. Mm. And uh, these are kind of the two most active, one male and one female. There are other, like the older generation of gods, like Ale is like mm-hmm. the old man on the throne with the long beard. But Baal uh, and Asherah, these are the ones that are like most engaged in the world. I love what you were saying about Baal being a storm god, which is absolutely right. And the sort of irony that he can't make it rain. And so we, yeah. we've got a contest coming up here, as you well know. But the their contest is kind of already underway, right? God, right. the God of Israel has closed up the heavens so that it has not rained in some time. And Baal, like that's the line one on Baal's job description is I can control the weather. And the question, mm-hmm. I mean, here it's uh, maybe, maybe not so much. Amy, there are so many prophets. <laughs> I mean, we've got uh, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. You know, when you come to prophecy through like biblical prophets, you tend to think of them as these sort of isolated figures. Like there's maybe one or two of them running around at the, at the time. Here we've got 850 prophets that apparently work for Ahab and Jezebel. You, can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's a little hard for me even to understand. Like maybe you can help me understand. When when they're being called prophets here, is the idea just that they have like a little more of a direct connection, like a little better ability to discern what those gods think about things and what they want? That's how I would think about it, yeah. So then you would think if you had, you know, 800 some odd... <laughs> people who all had some kind of who had some kind of legitimate special connection to the deity you should have a pretty strong connection yeah. i mean usually we only hear about i mean who knows if we've heard about all the prophets in ancient israel but i definitely don't think of it as something that there would be a whole big crowd it's interesting too that they are serving the the king and queen you know often we think of biblical prophets as sort of outside of the central government in that way. There are prophets who seem to be advising kings in Israel. Like there's a wide range of what prophecy can be. But it seems like, I mean, all of these guys, Jezebel's feeding them. Like she's maintaining them. She is, they're on her payroll. Yeah. Um, So there's a very, very clear intermingling here of the power of the throne and 
you know, folks that they understand to have some religious power. I think that you're exactly right. This kind of phenomenon in which there are lots of prophets on the king's payroll was actually pretty common in the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. And this is a value, like this is like the, you know, the consultants of the day, right? Instead of people who had yeah. like lots of knowledge about statistics and policy and whatever, it was people who had or claimed to have anyway, special access to the gods. The biblical text is quite critical of professional prophets most of the time. Mm-hmm. We see in a couple of chapters in 1 Kings 22, the story of Micaiah ben Imla, who is a prophet of God who's on the payroll of the king of Israel. And there are lots of prophets of God, but they just tell the king whatever the king wants to hear. And Micaiah is the only one who will tell the king what is actually mm-hmm. God's mm-hmm. prophecy. Mm-hmm. There is a sense in the biblical text of, when you're a prophet and you work for the king or the queen in this case, you're, I mean, where you get your money, it's like where a you get your meal, like you're going to tell them what they want to hear. Yeah. yeah. Here it's interesting because according from the biblical perspective, they've got special access to a God, Baal and Asherah who either don't exist or who are not really very powerful. And mm-hmm. so even if they do have the access they claim, then it's kind of meaningless. But nonetheless, the the sheer number of them suggests the degree to which Ahab and Jezebel are devoted to to them and their perspective and to these Mm -hmm. gods, Baal and Asherah. Picking up then in verse 20. Ahab sent the message to all the Israelites. He gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you hobble back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow God. If Baal is God, follow Baal. The people gave no answer. Elijah said to the people, I am the last of the Lord's prophets, but Baal's prophets number 450. Give us two bulls. Let Baal's prophets choose one. Let them cut it apart and set it on the wood, but don't add fire. I'll prepare the other bull. Put it on the wood, but won't add fire. Then all of you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers with fire, that's the real God. All the people answered, that is an excellent idea. So Amy, the scene that we have here is Elijah, and then all of these prophets, and then all of Israel is how it's told here, gathered for this contest that Elijah is proposing. The first thing, though, that Elijah does is to address the people. And in the CEB translation, how long will you hobble back and forth between two opinions? Mm. How does the JPS have that question? How long will you keep hopping between two opinions? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think the point is fairly clear, but uh, how would you think about that, the sort of hopping or wobbling? It's so interesting to me that Elijah does not does not come out of the gates saying you cannot follow Baal. Yeah. He comes out of the gate saying you can't have it both ways. Yes. One of these things is true or the other. And you know in the in the in the Canaanite mindset, you don't so much have to choose a god like there are multiple yeah. gods that you could be simultaneously devoted to. Yeah. But I mean, maybe in some ways, just by virtue of saying you have to choose. Yes. That's like an Israelite way of thinking about the whole question. 
The God of Israel is not just one of the gods in the pantheon. I love that. And and it's entirely possible to be devoted to a God who is not truly a God in any real sense. And so Elijah's saying, like, there is a genuine choice to, to be made here. And worshiping the God of Israel is a choice that one has to make, even if Elijah's ultimate claim is that Baal and Asherah are no real gods. And so like in the modern world, we think about, you know, like, well, your choice is either you worship God or like you don't worship. I mean, there's a possibility of like not worshiping anybody, at least in the sort of secular mindset. But in fact, there are all kinds of, like if you think about God as the thing to which you give your ultimate devotion or something Mm -hmm. like that, there are all sorts of gods out there. And we can live with the illusion. And so we talk about this fairly often with the like, you know, like being freed from Egypt so you don't serve Pharaoh, but now immediately you serve God. Like you're going to serve somebody as Bob Dylan has it. Uh, And so, yeah, so here, here you got to make a choice and you can, you can go a long time pretending like there's no choice to be made. Yes. And here Elijah is putting Saying it, it is a choice. Clearly. Yeah. No, I mean, it was making me think this time around reading it about these conversations we've had about how, you know, there, there's there's God and the way that God asks us to live in the world. And then there's, you know, our sense of complete independence from one another. Like, which one is more important to you? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, this is not what Elijah's saying. Elijah's talking about a Canaanite deity. But I think there are a lot of points of tension where we where we choose between genuinely recognizing God as God and all these yeah. aspects of our daily life that we don't think of as gods, but yeah. you're exactly right. I mean, that that actually drive our decisions. I think that's really important as modern readers trying to get into this text as something that applies to yeah. us. Yes. So otherwise it seems like, okay, an ancient contest between gods and you know, like whatever, like we don't have right, that exactly whatever thing. because I'm not, I'm not. There's no risk of me starting to follow Bale, so I right. can just be like, oh, those guys are dumb. Yeah, but but if you, you know, think of it as the dominant ideology of like American exactly. consumer capitalism or something that like exactly that, then right. who are you going to choose? Well, I can do both of those things. I can worship that God and exactly worship right. capitalism. And Elijah is saying, no, in fact, no, you can't. You're hopping back and forth between yeah. two. Yes. That yeah. Hebrew there is something like wobbling upon two sticks or something like that, mm. or maybe hopping between two sticks. Some people read that, and I think the JPS might be doing this as like like a little bird, like jumping from mm-hmm. branch to branch, like it can't mm-hmm. light anywhere for very long. Some people have read that as an image of, of walking on crutches, that you're sort of like putting your weight on one and then putting your weight on the other. And so you you are hobbled by this kind of way of moving. I mean, the point is clear enough, right? Like these two opinions, you've got to pick one. The image that's being used there is less clear. Yeah, I don't know that it matters overly much. Is there one? Is there a way of reading that that seems more useful to you, or does it kind of seem like the point is the I same? Mean- in some ways, the point is the same. I guess I have this image in my head, especially with the word hobbling from your translation, mm-hmm. but also hopping, that there's some sort of like instability or impermanence in in it. Yes. Like yeah. you, you can't keep doing that and yeah. it might prevent you from falling over if you can hop fast enough, but that's not actually stability. It's yeah. It's something else. 
Now the people just, the people gave no answer. They just have nothing to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have thoughts about, like they don't protest. They don't, I don't, they just don't do anything. They have nothing to say. What do you think about that? I mean, I think of it in some ways as like, they have become so like entrenched in this mindset that that those things are not in conflict with each other, that yeah. there's no problem with. They they have adopted the dominant mindset that that there can be multiple gods. And so that it's it telling them that they're they have to choose they're I don't know. I read it just sort of either as this kind of stunned yeah. or like kind of paralyzing, like how how would we even begin to do that. I think that I, I like that a lot. I when sometimes when I teach around in, you know, churches uh, that are more on the upper middle class spectrum, mm-hmm. and I try to sometimes lay out this sort of choice mm-hmm. that modern people might have to make. And oftentimes it is met with sort of a stunned silence or like a yes. Uh, we don't actually have to make exactly. that choice. We don't know what you're talking about. And I, I I think that's a good way of reading this. The other way, another way of reading it is to say, if they were to stake a claim, it feels too risky to them because they really don't know which one is legitimate. Maybe they don't have to make a choice or maybe they would pick the wrong one. Yeah. And so the safe move is just to say nothing because what if we put our lot in with the, with the God who is not the real God yeah. and then the other God's going to be angry with us. So Elijah proposes this contest with the cutting up of the bulls and the, mm-hmm. the like whoever calls down fire and the fire comes down, that's the real God. Can you just talk us through what's happening here and why do you think Elijah proposes this kind of a it's contest? It's such an interesting contest because it's really like, if we imagine that the people are just kind of stunned because they it never occurred to them that they had to choose and they feel like they have no grounds on which to make that decision. It's this, it's like Elijah's trying to give them some kind of fairly objective data that anyone can see. Yeah. Anyone could agree that this is happening or not happening, you know, with this, you know, kind of forced <laughs> situation where they're going to, you know, set up two different sacrifices, but he's going to give every advantage to the folks who are on the side of Baal. You know, we'll see it more sort of as it unfolds, but even as it starts here, like, you, we'll have two bowls and you guys choose your bowl. And yeah. we'll, you know, we'll we'll lay them all out on the fire and whichever whichever God actually consumes their sacrifice, I said something confusing. I said, we'll lay it out on the fire. They're going to lay it out as a sacrifice without setting it on fire. Without any fire, yeah. Without fire. And then whichever God like sends fire from the heavens to consume the sacrifice, that's the real God. Now, this, I mean, is not really a thing that God usually does. It's not like that's usually how sacrifice works. (laughs) Right, yeah, yeah. So it's always very surprising to me here. I'm like, did did Elijah make this up and is just hoping God wants to play this game? Yeah. Or... Like later on, he'll say that God told him to, but we we don't get any. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing in this part. Of, like as as we build up to it, maybe Elijah's just going out on the limb and trusting yeah. that God's going to back him up. Yeah, I like that. 
I was thinking that the, you know, we've talked about how Baal is a storm god. And so I was wondering if the fire is like a coming at Baal from his weak point, right? But I think what's happening here is that Baal is a storm god and therefore controls lightning. And mm-hmm. so it would be perfectly reasonable to think that Baal could send a lightning strike that would catch this sacrifice on fire. Mm-hmm. Is that how you read it? Is, is this about... That's a is good question. Like, is is this actually a legitimate test? I have. I mean, honestly, I feel like the bigger question is: Do the people think it is? Yeah, and they do. Yes, the they people do. say very good. They That's would. They could idea. not answer yeah. Elijah before. Yeah. When Elijah said you had to choose, but when Elijah said, "I'm going to do this," and then you'll see who responds. The people say, yeah, "Excellent." Yeah. Do Why that. do you think they think that's an excellent idea? Like it just seems kind of fun or like now they're going to have ev- evidence they <laughs> need in order to make a decision? I think because it gives them some kind of objective evidence. I think the people feel like they have no evidence, even though there's a drought. Like yeah. a drought is like kind of vague. That could yeah. <laughs> it can mean a lot of things. Yeah. And this, it's, I don't know, it feels like a sort of controlled environment where you've announced some kind of miraculous outcome in advance. And so yeah. it does seem like it would be some kind of real evidence for them, some kind of proof. Yeah. The other thing in this little section that I just want to point out is that there are 450 prophets of Baal, mm-hmm. which we talked about earlier. And then Elijah has said, I am the last of the Lord's prophets. So his sense anyway here is that he's the only one so one versus 450. And there was maybe nobody else he could go and, and call on. Yeah. Do you thoughts about like the, that like the, just the weight I of mean, numbers? I mean, it just feels like such an extreme, it's like another example of the extreme underdog posture. Yeah. If we imagine that these prophets of Baal all legitimately have a connection to Baal, who is a legitimate deity. Yeah. Then it would be so easy yeah. For them to drown out whatever Elijah is able to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Bible really likes that underdog. Yeah. I like that. Because way of it makes it, it so clear that God, that it's God yeah. doing it. Yeah. Is there another reading that you Well, I was going about? in the side of a different direction. But I like but I like that reading of this is another in the example of the like the way in which this contest is weighted in one direction. I, I think it is that. The other thing that occurs to me is just in the previous chapter, we got to notice that the prophet Obadiah had hid another 100 prophets of Israel from Ahab. And so mm. it seems <laughs> that there actually are other prophets running around mm-hmm. in Israel. And yet Elijah, and so, I, I, so either he's doing it for dramatic effect, which is what you're sort of suggesting, which I think is a nice reading. Or there's another reading, which maybe is a little bit tangential to the text, but that for whatever reason, this position that Elijah is in as a prophet and a public prophet makes him feel very isolated and alone as though there is no one else that is on his team. And I just think that that is often an experience that people who are leading some sort of prophetic countercultural movement Mm -hmm. often, at least in moments, feel like they're the only one and I'm all by myself. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, I'm just some, thinking about something along the lines of thinking you are the one, the only one, when in mm-hmm. fact you have a team 
they're just a little bit, they're not, they're not immediately That's available. That's a really interesting reading, you know, just especially the way Elijah's character unfolds over time that maybe he doesn't need to be doing this alone, mm-hmm. but he imagines that he mm-hmm. does. Yeah. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. If you find yourself listening to this episode thinking, man, I really wish I knew all of this stuff last week, have we got a deal for you. Maybe you're a pastor who wants to work a week ahead on your sermon. Or maybe you're a Bible nerd who wants to show off your Bible knowledge at the water cooler before everyone else has a chance to listen to the episode. Whatever the case, if you'd like to get early access to our episodes, you can join our Patreon at the early worm level or higher. You'll get access to every episode a week before it's available to the general public. You'll also get a truly amazing Bible Worm sticker and the satisfaction of supporting a good cause. Oh, and you'll get ad-free episodes so you won't have to keep listening to messages like this one. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. As always, thanks for listening to Bible Worm. And now, back to this week's episode. Anything else you want to say about setup for our contest before we get um, to our contest? No, I think we should get to the contest. So picking up with the contest in verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of these bulls. Prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but don't add fire. So they took one of the bulls that had been brought to them. They prepared it and called on Baal's name from morning to midday. They said, Great Baal, answer us. But there was no sound or answer. They performed a hopping dance around the altar that had been set up. Around noon, Elijah started making fun of them. Shout louder. Certainly he's a god. Perhaps he is lost in thought or wandering or traveling somewhere. Or maybe he's asleep and must wake up. So the prophets of Baal cried with a louder voice and cut themselves with swords and knives as was their custom. Their blood flowed all over them. As noon passed, they went crazy with their ritual until it was time for the evening offering. Still, there was no sound or answer, no response whatsoever. So the prophets of Baal, they do all sorts of things here, trying to get their god Baal to respond. Can you just talk a little bit about they're hopping around, they're cutting themselves, they're shouting really loud like thoughts about their I mean, approach here i'm a s- okay first of all i just have to say that reading this especially you reading it aloud to me just now i was like they're not measuring i mean elijah's not that's the thing about these tests like you have to be careful what you're measuring it doesn't say to me whether bail exists or not it says whether bail can be controlled by yeah. his prophets behaving in this manner like whether they can force Bail to do something with their like collective ritualistic behavior, which is not going well. <laughs> it is not going well. Yeah. Uh, my understanding of what they're doing is just that this was th- this was like a ritual way of trying to call upon Bail to like invoke their deity. I d- I don't know what else to say about it. I assume they're not making things up on the fly that this is yeah this is their practice do you, do you have more to say i don't really know what to make of all the specific rituals but i think you're right the hopping dance i think this is probably a common practice of them as it gets 
further into the day and they start gashing themselves. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the like really trying to draw Bale's attention, the sort of self-flagellation. Like mm-hmm. we see this in other traditions as well. And so there's this sort of progression and increasing desperation maybe mm-hmm. as the day goes on about ways to get Bale's attention. Mm-hmm. The point you're raising is really interesting about whether this is a question of does the God exist or not exist versus can you manipulate the God through ritual action? Because in just a minute, I mean, spoiler alert, Elijah is going to do a similar thing and God's yeah. going to respond, Yeah. which if you follow that line of thinking, then what this proves is that God can, the God of Israel can be manipulated, you know, <laughs> by a prophet, right? Right. The other way, and other way of thinking about it is, is God, is the God responsive to the needs of the people yeah. in the moment? And here it appears that Baal, even if Baal exists, is just not that interested, even in a moment when Baal's sort of reputation is on the line, mm-hmm. is not that interested in responding. Now, Elijah gives them a couple hours and then at noon starts making fun of them. I don't, I just love this guy. He just, (laughs) he's so funny to me. But he starts saying maybe he's on a trip or maybe he's sleeping or maybe he's like, surely he's a god, (laughs) right? Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Thoughts about Elijah's kind of poking fun at them? You know, for whatever reason, this time around reading this, like, it stung a little bit because I feel mm. like not that people say these specific things about the God mm. of Israel when God does not respond immediately yeah. to situations of suffering, but there are actually a lot of theologians who wrestle with the question of yeah. why God allows suffering to happen. Or even like in in the uh, story of the beginning of Exodus, when God responds to the suffering of the Egyptians, there is definitely a sense that they had to like cry out, like like yeah. scream in the way that that you're like panicked, like you're about to die, like you can't go any further. And finally God responds. And so there really is a question about what was God doing yeah. before this? Yeah. And there are a lot of theologies that say that you you somehow we have to call God in to respond to things. So for whatever reason, reading it this time around, I was like, Elijah, you're making fun of us too. Like <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah. Us, your your descendants in the, in this tradition. That said, of course, these specific <laughs> examples are like. Maybe he's at the grocery store or like, you know, his phone's on silent or whatever. It seems crazy to think that a a powerful deity who's like connected to this people in particular would just be involved in a conversation or like taking a nap. You've kind of ruined my fun a little bit, Amy. Because the comment I was ready to make now is like one of these expressions means maybe he's pooping. Like maybe he's using the bathroom. <laughs> that one, like the one he's, wa- maybe he's wandering is sometimes understood as a like reference to like, That's maybe, he's, maybe he's gone to the bathroom, which is hysterical. But is hysterical. then when you think like, but sometimes God doesn't respond to us either. It is, it's less funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, but, but, but theologically more important. But Elijah is trying to be funny. He is. And this text Elijah. is trying to be funny. And this text is trying yeah. to be funny. And Elijah is certainly is doing it for, you know, to actually mock the prophets, but is also doing it so that the Israelites hear yeah. the mocking and have these questions in their head too. Like, why isn't Baal responding? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we've seen, well, I don't know that we've seen this season, but one of the things that happens in the Hebrew Bible with the God of Israel, we see that God often responds when God's reputation is on the line. Mm -hmm. And so like when in the story of the golden calf, when God is going to annihilate the Israelites, one of the things Moses says to God is all the other peoples know you brought us out here in the wilderness. And so if you, if we die out here, they're going to think you couldn't do it. You're going to look really stupid. And so God says, Oh, okay, that's, you're right. I I better Mm -hmm. finish what I started. Mm -hmm. So there is this sense that gods have egos. And so when, Elijah starts poking fun at Baal and he's really trying to, you know, maybe what he's trying to do is say like, look, I came after Baal so hard. If he was going to respond. That's interesting to to think Elijah's actually upping the ante for Baal and Baal doesn't care. Yeah. He's poking the bear. Mm, Um, Interesting. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could totally see that. So at the end of the day, when it comes time for the evening offering, there's, they've been going since the morning we get the impression that it's been, I mean, maybe like six or eight hours or something. They've been doing this all day and there's no, there's no response, no sound whatsoever. Picking up in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here. All the people closed in and he repaired the Lord's altar that had been damaged. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the Lord's word came, your name will be Israel. He built the stones into an altar in the Lord's name, and he dug a trench around the altar big enough to hold two seahs of dry grain. He put the wood in order, butchered the bull, and placed the bull on the wood. Fill four jars with water and pour it on the sacrifice and on the wood, he commanded. Do it a second time, he said. So they did it a second time. Do it a third time. And so they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and even the trench filled with water. So you were talking a little bit earlier about how Elijah is kind of stacking the decks against himself. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk about the ways in which Elijah is making this contest harder for, for him? I mean, the most obvious one to me is in the middle of a drought, no less, yeah. that he has, he's he's poured these buckets of water over the animal that is supposed to catch fire and the wood. And it almost seems like it's created a little moat around it in this, you know, ditch that he built for the, I can't tell if it just says like, that's giving you just the size of the ditch or if he actually put flour in it. But In any case, it's wet. He's making it very, he's like just, again, going back to that like objective, I'm trying to give you data that is like irrefutable data that this is not something that could just happen. Yeah. And he's using what is right now like their most precious resource to do it, water. Yeah. I had not made that connection about, I mean, it's it's such an obvious connection once you say it, but like, in the time of a drought, he's using the water for this purpose. And that 
it's not just like, oh, the wood's really wet, but it's like a precious resource has been expended in this way. That's really nice. I don't quite know what to make of that, but I, I like that. Now, there's a, so much symbolic stuff that's happening in here. So it's not just that he, you know, made a little campfire and put a, put a bull on there and called down fire from heaven, but it starts out talking about repairing the Lord's altar because that altar had been damaged. And then we get 12 stones. We get mention of the 12 tribes. We get the naming, the remembering our text from back in Genesis 32 about Jacob's name being changed to Israel. There's so much happening here of this sort of richly symbolic nature. Can you just talk about like why is of, what do you think that's doing there that and like why up. does it matter? I mean, I think in an ideal world, look, like Elijah's got kind of a big, I think, ego, maybe rightfully so, but in order to facilitate what he really wants to facilitate here, he kind of has to get out of the way. Like he's trying to remind the people and get them to to feel their relationship to this God. And yes. so even just the first act of saying, come closer, like yeah. it could just be a like, you need to watch and make sure I'm not, you know, watch my magic trick. Mm. But I would like to think of it not as watch my yeah. magic trick, but like you are part of what is happening yeah. here. Like this is for you. And the 12 stones for the 12 tribes, I mean, there's a pointedness in this while the kingdom is split. Like the 12 tribes are not present oh, yeah. mm-hmm. here. But it's 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 this reminder, you know, again, sort of going back to the idea of like Jacob and the changing of Jacob's name to, uh, to Israel. Like you come from one root and you are all sort of present here at this you, you, you're here, like you have skin in the game. Oh, it's making me think back to that, the reading we did last week where the people said, we have no stake in David. Like this is mm-hmm. not, this yeah. is not ours. Like this is such a clear ritual to me of like, this is yours. This is you. This is, you know, like it's not actually about me, Elijah. It is, yeah. it is about you. I don't know. I wonder if that, I wonder how much all of this resonated with them. It's like trying to get back to some kind of like peoplehood memory that goes before they were introduced mm. to cosmopolitan, Phoenician, the world, you know, like the big wide world and just like gets back to this core, this core identity that's like beneath all those mm-hmm. other layers. I really love that, Amy, reminding the people of their story and of who they are. I think that also moves in the other direction, which is reminding God Mm. who God is in relation Mm -hmm. to this people. Mm. I think those stories always work in both those directions in this sort of covenantal mindset of the Hebrew Bible. And so it is like repairing the altar of the Lord is reminding, you know, the people, like we need to pay proper respect to God, but it is also showing God like we're tending to the things we need to tend to. Remember that there are the 12 tribes that are your 12 tribes. Remember, do you remember back in Genesis 32 when you wrestled with our ancestor and changed his name to Israel? Like that's us. And so the story becomes like this kind of bonding agent almost for the people to God, but also reminding God for the people. But with so few words, like Mm -hmm. it's, 
It's a very powerful yeah. and, and in some ways subtle use of like ritual mm-hmm. details to like invoke all of these yeah. aspects of their shared story. Yeah, which is says something about the importance of symbol and ritual in this yeah. in this relationship for sure. Because the only real words here would come here and then the Oh, and that's even an aside. I was thinking he had invoked the your name will be Israel, but that's the narrator just telling us why he did the 12 stones. And so that those words are not said out loud, your name will be Israel. They're just it's left to the people and to God to recognize the symbolism of the 12. Mm-hmm, yeah. That's right. There's another 12 in here that is a little subtler, and I don't know if it's meant to be here or not, but Elijah has them fill four jars three times and pour mm-hmm. it on the on the wood. So there's 12 jars of water that has been poured on the wood. And so this, the symbolism is, is thick here in yeah. all of these ways. Yeah. Of course, the more practical point in terms of all the water is Elijah has made it really difficult, like even more difficult than it is to light a bonfire, you know, from heaven. Um, Now it's a bonfire to be made with sopping wet wood. Okay, let's see how the contest turns out, picking up in verse 36. At the time of the evening offering, the prophet Elijah drew near and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. I have done all these things at your instructions. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, Lord, are the real God and that you can change their hearts. Then the Lord's fire fell. It consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up the water in the trench. All the people saw this and fell on their faces. The Lord is the real God. The Lord is the real God, they exclaimed. So the way that Elijah calls God to action, and he's continuing this sort of subtle, subtler process. There's no dancing or hopping or gashing. It's just, it's just a prayer. Can you talk about that content of Elijah's prayer there and what you see? I mean, in some ways, it it starts the way you would sort of expect. You know, you are the God of, and then, you know, naming the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, but here naming Israel instead of Jacob, mm-hmm. which is a little unusual, mm-hmm. but does, again, invoke this, invoke all the tribes. Yeah. You know, it sort of points points in both directions. And then I think, I see... I don't know. I'm curious what you think about this, Bobby. And in his prayer, there's both this, let it be known that you are God in Israel. Uh And then later on, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Uh Like, and I wonder if there's sort of intentionally, there's like a particularity, you are God in Israel. Like you are the God for these people. And then there's also this like universalism that is maybe in direct response to the question of like, how, how do we think about the God of Israel in the context of, you know, a society where, you know, like we're not just living in a bubble here, you know, there are other peoples that have other, other gods. And I'm not sure how to hold those two things together. I just see both of them in there. Yeah. I mean, the way that I would tend to read that is, you are God in Israel, mm-hmm. and therefore, so far as this 
people is concerned, you are the only real God. And it's a little bit like, I don't know what people outside of Israel are meant to think. Mm. I, don't, I don't think Elijah cares think so Elijah much. Elijah doesn't care about that. That's what I think, yeah. What matters is that the people of God worship God as the real God. Yeah. What do the Phoenicians do over in Phoenicia? I'm not sure Elijah's interested. Yeah. Now I don't know, like this is not a this is not a great basis for like interfaith dialogue necessarily. Like, you know, uh our God is the only real God. Uh, but it is a powerful way of sort of making sure people know who they are and whose they are and what where their commitments lie. Yeah. So so Elijah has no real interest in getting you know, the Phoenicians to recognize the God of Israel. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things, I mean, I talk about Walter Brueggemann more than I should, but I've been, I've been working on this book about Walter's work. And this is one of the things that he is trying to, to argue is that we, whoever we are, the community of faith lives in a story. And that story that we live in is a story in which the God of Israel is God, full stop. Mm-hmm. And other people live in other stories, but and that's not so much our business, but internal yeah. to our story, yeah. the Lord is God. And that's I think that's what I'm trying to say that Elijah maybe is after here, mm-hmm. is that so far as the people of Israel gathered here around this altar is concerned, the Lord is God. And that's full stop. And it doesn't really give you any way to relate to other peoples who have other systems. Like it, right. it just has no frame of reference to them. So how to actually live in a multicultural or multi-religious context yes. within that, it just doesn't comment. And, it doesn't. and that is a problem for this time period, for these people at this time. And it, and it is also a challenge sometimes for us now in our modern time. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what Elijah maybe here is saying is you got to get your head on straight about who you are yeah. before you worry about who other people are. Like let, mm. let the evil of the day be sufficient there unto. Mm. I like that. Said. Yeah. Now you mentioned this, uh, Elijah sort of here a little bit retrospectively says, I've done all these things at your instruction. Mm-hmm. Like, by the way, all this crazy stuff that's been happening, like you told me to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's also this like, let, so let it be known that you are God, but then also let it be known that I am your mm-hmm. servant. Yeah. So there's a little bit of like, he's involved in this contest too. Mm-hmm. He's got something to prove. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, I don't know how I feel about that. How, yeah. <laughs> how do you, what do you do with that? I mean, I think you could read it as sort of ego and Elijah's got one. I also think you could read it as like, look, he's, he's about to bring a, bring on this great piece of data, but it is true that it could be interpreted in different ways. Like this could be interpreted as witchcraft. Like this mm-hmm. could be, you know, like, and what he needs to happen is that it is not, is that the whole point is that this miraculous thing that's about to happen is supposed to be taken as direct evidence of God's presence and power I guess in order for that to happen, they have to see Elijah as a servant of God. Or it could just be ego. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the fire comes down from heaven. It consumes like everything, not just Mm -hmm. the bull, but like the wood. It licks up the water, the little tongues (laughs) of fire. Yeah. Lick up Um, the water. 
I mean, so this is just a demonstration of like how completely powerful this thing was. Is there anything else to say? Like, and in contrast to the like utter silence of the bales, now there's this like overwhelming response from God. I mean, yeah, it, it's, I don't have any real nuance to add to it. Like it just yeah. seems like the way that Elijah has set it up, it's very, Elijah sets up a black and white duality, you know, and says like, you have to choose between these two things. There is no continuum. There's not, there's no real nuance in this. Yeah. No. And the test that he has set up has no real nuance in None. it. He's made it as stark yeah. as he can. And the answer is stark. Yeah. My favorite thing, this detail here, is that, at least in this translation, it's like it consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones. I'm like, oh my gosh, this fire is consuming rocks. And then it's like, it even licked up the water. And I'm like, yeah. that yeah. seems less impressive to me. Like, mm-hmm. it even it even consumed the stones. Like, that would be a real, anyway. No, that, it is a, it is unquestionably miraculous. Yeah. So this is what the people needed. They fall on their faces. They declare the Lord is God. The Lord is God. And so that they have now committed themselves, I guess, mm-hmm. to the God of Israel. I don't know. Like, like I'm glad that they did. <laughs> like, this is a very convincing demonstration. I would love for them to have been able to get to that point without, ha- without that having to happen. Yeah. But that is apparently what they needed. Right. So in the rest of this story, once the people have acknowledged that God is God, then um, the land is cleared of prophets of Baal, and then it starts to rain at the very end of this text. And so this moment in the story is the end, the end of the sort of drought period, and things seem to be set right after this. Mm-hmm. Amy, there's a lot going on in this text, and we've raised a lot of things my head's going in so many different directions. I'm curious as you're thinking about where this text connects with our world today in a way that feels particularly important to you. Where's your head going? I don't know if this is a very good answer, Bobby, but I, you know, you said a minute ago that you wish that this was not what it took mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> for the people to come to this realization. And I think you know, if I'm being honest, what I what I really feel reading this story is that sometimes I think pr- the presence of stories like this in the canon actually makes it harder mm-hmm. for people in my community to find their own relationship with the divine because they expect this. Yes. And this is just not really what it looks like to <laughs> for yeah. the most part to yeah. to have a relationship with with God. And so I wish it were true that the presence of these stories, like that we could sort of live in the, like take on the story of the miracle ourselves and and then it would be enough, that it would be enough for us. But I find that that's not really how it works, that it's once there are some miracles, we want more miracles, we want another miracle. And so my question is almost like, how how do we find a life of faith not in spite of this story, but like, <laughs> yeah. And so I think what I'm most drawn to in, in that way is, is that the the quieter things that Elijah does to try to draw the people mm-hmm. into what is happening and 
and say like, this is, this relationship is yours and this story is yours and you should, you should participate in this and not just watch it and wait to be wowed. They will be wowed, but we can pause before we get to that part of the story. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really moved that he tells them to come closer before anything mm-hmm. happens. And I try to read that as, as making this, making, drawing them into the story and having them sort of put some skin in the game and not just like you have nothing to risk and you're just watching to see if something will, you know, impress you or not, mm-hmm. which I, I feel like is, I don't know, is sometimes, sometimes what we seem to be asking of God and, and that doesn't go well. Mm-hmm. The one last thing I want to add, and I'm not totally sure how this fits, but it just feels so like present in my mind, is these words at the end, Adonai Huha Elohim, that we read as like the the Lord is God or the Lord alone is God or the Lord is a real God or something like that. Those are like the culminating words of the Yom Kippur liturgy Mm. that we recite seven times. Again, like very ritualistic. You know, we love sevens. I'm sure most people don't know where it comes from, but- after this day of like really intense ritual and really trying to put your skin in the game and then trying to arrive at the conclusion that what has happened that day in whatever sanctuary you are in, that need that needs to be sufficient. You're, you know, like sufficiently miraculous yeah. on our terms and our world. And I don't know. I feel like I'm just talking in circles here, Bobby. But no, I love that, Amy. So. There's so much in there. So I was, I was also thinking about this question. I was thinking about it before you ruined this text for me <laughs> earlier. <laughs> uh, but we too have choices to make. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that this is one of the things that I want to come back to in this text. I mean, I think it's probably the most obvious reading of this text. And so what you just said something very subtle and profound. My sort of blunt reading of this text <laughs> But more is, useful. <laughs> is in this story, there is a choice to be made between the gods of the kingdom in which you are living and the God of Israel, who is the true God. And the people are not willing to make that choice. It is either that they don't realize that there is a choice that has to be made, it doesn't make any sense to them, or that they're afraid that if they make the one choice, you know, if if I choose the gods of Phoenicia, then maybe the God of Israel is going to be upset with me. But if I choose the gods of God of Israel, then maybe those gods don't work for me anymore. And we find ourselves like, in, like you have to metaphoricalize it one step, but it's not a far step to say that we live in a world in which there is a dominant culture of what Brueggemann would call military consumerism that beckons us with a certain set of values and that's where we get our money from and that's where we get our livelihood and that's where we get our stability. Mm-hmm. It is very persuasive. And then we have the biblical story, which is calling us to a different kind of life that is often not as in our face and often yeah. not as compelling. And we would love it if there was not a choice to be made between those two. And I think yes. lots of us, myself included, I mean, I'm speaking as a tenured professor at a you know, relatively elite liberal arts institution who the this system is working well for me and the cost of thinking about in what ways are these things actually not compatible mm-hmm. might be high. Mm-hmm. And so I would just as soon say nothing. 
And this text is saying that it, the nothing option is not a real option. Yeah. You've got to choose. As Joshua says in Joshua 24, choose this day whom you will serve. Yes. And yes. there is a choice that always must be made. Which brings me back to where you ended, which I, I thought was so beautiful, that you and I have to make that choice mostly without fire coming down from heaven and licking up the stones and the water around the offering. We make that choice based on ritual and symbol and a reminder of the people to whom we belong. I love what you were saying earlier about the 12 tribes, even though right now we're actually in a period of division. Like we remember that we belong to all of them, even though we are separated from each other in some ways. And that's true in the Christian world. Um, in some stark ways, but we, we belong to each other. And so we have that and we have the memory. We have the invocation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm-hmm. We have that r- invitation in Deuteronomy 5 that you were there, the covenant is made with us. Yeah. This story in that sense did happen to us. It just doesn't happen to us on the daily. Yeah. And so like, this is our story too. Sometimes it doesn't feel like much to hold on to. It doesn't feel like a lot to make this kind of choice when I can look at the balance on my, you know, 401k and tell whether I'm secure or not. Mm. This story is not a lot to put one's trust in, but it's the story we've got to put our trust in. Yeah. All right, Amy, next week we are moving on to the prophets. We'll be in the book of Hosea chapter 11 verses one to nine. Okay. It's so funny. You said the prophets. I was like, we're already in the prophets. Oh, right. Jewish Christian difference. Right. Okay. That's true. (laughs) Yes. The other prophets. We've been in the historical books. Yeah. 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 You're right. Great. Okay. Well, I look forward to that. All right. Me too. See what he's got to say. Okay, Amy. Thanks for this conversation. I'll see you next time. Have a good one. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll discuss Hosea's metaphor of God as Israel's parent, Hosea 11, 1-9. Until then, keep on digging.